This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. In recent years, the natural parenting movement, which praises virtues of birth without medical interference, the importance of breastfeeding at all costs, and attachment parenting, has become the new normal and a big business. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an expert in the field who is kind of a voice of reason for mothers who thoughtfully make the best choices for their babies and themselves, but have to contend with other mothers and so-called experts who were questioning those choices through natural parenting websites, blogs, message boards, and even in person from sanctimonies in the local playgroup. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about bucking conventional wisdom, even when conventional wisdom seems to be unconventional, and we're going to be looking at the scientific claims of natural childbirth and breastfeeding and attachment parenting, and we're going to find out, unfortunately, that a lot of this stuff is overstated and, at worst, actually false. More importantly, these powerful groups of people have become a big business with a multitude of products and service providers who stand to profit from all of this misinformation that's pushing well-meaning mothers and fathers down the wrong path. And so join us as we debunk a lot of the guilt-inducing myths and remind everybody out there that loving your baby is the most important thing you can do, not how you give birth or whether or not you give them a bottle. It all starts right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. If we could pack our kids in bubble wrap, we'd do it, because we love them and we want to protect them. This is Lisa Edelstein with an easy way to protect your kids three times a day. Choose healthy foods. Research has shown that a vegetarian diet rich in fruits and vegetables can help protect our kids against obesity. It can even help keep them from developing heart disease or cancer when they grow up. To learn more, call 866-906-WELL or visit cancerproject.org. This message brought to you by The Cancer Project. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and my guest for this part of today's show is Amy Tutur, who's the author of Push Back Guilt in the Age of Natural Parenting. Amy, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, let's have you set the stage a little bit. Uh, you're, you're an OBGYN, right. and you probably are dealing with people coming into your office with a whole printout full of stuff that they've gotten off the Internet. Uh, right. Full of of advice and things like that, and I can imagine the eye rolling that you're that you're doing sometimes. What are the the most common myths that you're having to debunk on a regular basis? Well, I no longer practice, but um, I interact with women daily on the internet, and uh, probably the most common myths are that doctors want to operate on you to ruin your birth experience and get to their golf game. And still? Still. And, uh, you know, that harks back to the 1950s with a very patriarchal medical system. And today, most uh, 
pediatricians are women. Most of them have had children of their own, and very, very few play golf. And so why is this still out there then? Well, because um, obstetrics rose to prominence uh, because it provided greater safety in childbirth and pain relief. And midwifery in the United States went into virtual decline uh, and didn't start coming back until the 1960s and really was not successful until it reinvented itself in opposition to obstetrics. So uh, if doctors medicalized birth, then natural childbirth proponents would say the important thing is to be unmedicalized. If doctors offered excellent pain relief, natural childbirth advocates would say it's more important to feel the pain. You're empowered by the pain. If doctors offered interventions to, uh, which are essentially preventive medicine to prevent injuries and death to the baby, natural childbirth advocates said you don't need interventions. Childbirth is inherently safe. And pretty much everything that obstetrics offers, the natural childbirth industry says isn't needed or isn't scientific. Uh, really what you ought to do is ignore them and buy our goods and services. What are the goods and services that they're trying to sell? Uh, midwifery, doula <laughs> services, books, birth pools, birth balls, uh, hypnobirthing wow. tapes. All kinds of things. And it's unfortunate because the original natural childbirth movement of the 60s and 70s did great things. Um, you know, it was the natural childbirth movement that said women want to be aware of birth and they want to participate in it. And it was the natural childbirth movement that came into hospitals and said, you know, women want their uh, partners with them during birth. Why can't they be there? And the doctor said, well, they can't be there because... Because, oh, yeah. <laughs> actually, there's really no good reason why they can't be there. And so in the early 1980s, the natural childbirth um, uh, groups could have declared victory and gone home. But instead, they reinvented themselves as um, supporting, quote-unquote, normal birth. And they moved the goalposts. So whereas previously... Uh, the whole point was to be aware. All of a sudden, it was bad to have an epidural. You know, that's one of the interesting things. I, I teach classes for expectant fathers and talk about the element of guilt that comes in, particularly for new mothers who have had a C-section or have had right. an epidural, and that they feel guilty that they've failed somehow. And, and I, I am not sure that that's actually being taught in the classes but there's a, it's, it's kind of in the culture in a way. Well, I, I think it's in the culture, but I do think it came from the classes. Um, I think that uh, midwives, doulas, and natural childbirth educators have uh, created an idealized version of birth. Um, basically, they've become the wedding planners of birth. So whereas a wedding planner tells a woman that she is going to be the princess for her special day and everything must be perfect and this is how it must be and it must <laughs> cost a lot of money. Um, the childbirth educators, doulas, tell women that, you know, this is your special day and everything must be perfect 
And uh, when it's not, there's a tremendous amount of disappointment. And the thing is that anybody who knows anything about childbirth knows it's completely unpredictable. And trying to plan your ideal birth is like trying to plan for the wedding on the day you, uh, for the weather on the day that you get married. Yeah. You know, you can wish and hope, but you really have no control over it. You know, I've had OBs tell me about birth plans, that they just cringe when somebody walks in with a birth plan in print. They don't mind if somebody comes in with an idea in the back right. of their head about how they'd like to have it. But somebody said, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something like the the, the longer the birth plan, the greater the chance that something's going to go wrong. Right. Well, I, you know, what I say uh, on my blog and in the book is that I think birth plans are worse than useless. Um, and there's considerable research to support that claim. The, the fact is that birth plans were made up. I think they originated with um, a woman who was a childbirth educator but originally trained as a physical therapist. And basically, they're an opportunity to tell your doctor what you're going to refuse. They're not based on science, and there's no scientific evidence that they actually improve anything about childbirth. In fact, to the extent that they accomplish anything, the only thing birth plans seem to do reliably is lead to disappointment. And yet, uh, natural childbirth ad advocates will tell you that you have to have a birth plan. And uh, that's very unfortunate because it's just setting yourself up yeah. with unrealistic um, goals. You know, I want to go back to pain, since you mentioned that a little bit ago, and that's often part of a, a birth plan is I don't want to be offered any drugs, I don't want to right. take any drugs. And you talk about this in a re relatively straightforward kind of way, that, that the pain of birth is no different than the pain of anything else. No, if you, if no. If you slammed your hand in a car door or something like that, you're not going to say just breathe with it, it's good pain. Right, but, right. So well, why, why has... Have, have fewer people, or why have so few people stood up and said, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. Why well, should I have to feel anything if I don't I want to? I think the reason is because although people have become very savvy consumers when it comes to marketing from drug companies, they really don't realize that natural childbirth is an industry and it's marketing to them too. And, you know, a very simple rule of thumb for the natural childbirth industry is they will demonize anything they can't offer. So midwives, doulas, and childbirth educators can't offer epidurals. So epidurals are bad. They'll offer you water birth, which is supposedly, you know, it's known in the trade as the midwife's epidural. <laughs> uh, okay. In countries like the UK where nitrous uh, which goes by the name gas and air, is available in labor and midwives can administer it. They're all gung-ho about that drug. And, um, you know, most of the midwives I've worked with over my career have been excellent. They've really been excellent. But a segment of midwifery has been radicalized, and this is the way it's been radicalized, that the only thing that's good is services that we can offer, and everything we can't offer is bad. So since we can't offer effective pain relief, you're a failure if you opt for effective pain relief. Talking with Amy Tutur, who is the author of Pushback, Guilt in the Age of Natural Parenting. 
We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking with Amy, and we're going to get into some things about C-sections and a little bit about doulas I want to talk about and formula feeding. There's so much to talk about here and so many controversial things. We'll just be able to have a wonderful time with it. Uh, but we'll be right back. I'm Armin Brandt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, to your own parents, to your friends. But when it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, talking with Amy Tutur, who's just joining us, and she's the author of Push Back, Guilt in the Age of Natural Parenting. I wanted to have you talk a little bit about uh, doulas. You mentioned them very, very quickly, and that there's a, a large OB practice out here in San Francisco that basically disallowed or refused to allow doulas in their, in their operating rooms or in their hospital rooms because there were a few cases where a doula who's generally a, not a medically trained person always not a medical was uh, yes. was demanding certain things from the doctor and getting in the way basically right is that something that you see in other parts of the country as well oh absolutely you know um, what the scientific research shows is that when a woman has a support person in labor uh, her labor is much like is likely to go more smoothly. She's less likely to have a C-section. Uh, she's more likely to be satisfied with her labor. But that support person does not have to be a doula. It can be a spouse, a parent, uh, a uh, friend, anybody. It's just somebody that's there for that person alone. Some people don't have a spouse that they could rely on or a friend, and so they can hire a doula. And they, uh, when they stick to supporting women in labor, they are awesome. You know, when they are there to help you find the most comfortable position for you or get you a cold cloth for your head, they're awesome. When they start telling you that one kind of birth is better than another, they're not awesome at all because they're not uh, trained to know anything about childbirth, really. Some of them think they know a lot. But to be a certified doula, you just need 16 hours of uh, workshop. So wow, that's not very much. No, that's not very much. And some doulas don't even have that. They're, they're not certified. So um, being a doula has unfortunately gone from supporting women in labor to supporting a specific kind of birth. And I think... Um, Doulas can cause a lot of difficulty if they don't uh, restrict themselves to offering support and instead offer medical advice. You know, one of the most controversial things these days is the C-section rate. And right. it's, it's something, if you look at the statistics, it's really rather, rather shocking. I mean, you, hear, you see things in, in certain parts of the world, certain African countries where the C-section rate is 3% or 5%, and then in Brazil it's 45%, and in some very high-priced hospitals in Brazil, it's even higher than that because right. there's a certain uh, not wanting to have scars or anything, whatever it is, right. um, or stretch marks. 
and talk, talk about that because it, I think it is so easy to just say, well, it's 3%, and then the WHO says it shouldn't be any higher than 10 or 12%, but it's 30% in most hospitals in the United States. Help us make some sense of that. Okay, well, um, first of all, I'll tell you that when I was in practice, I personally had a C-section rate of 16%. Now, that was a time when there were more um, vaginal births after cesarean, but nonetheless, it wasn't. I didn't find it hard to have a C-section rate of 16%. On the other hand, I understand exactly why the C-section rate has climbed because um, just about anything that goes wrong in childbirth or most things that go wrong can be fixed or prevented with a C-section. And obstetricians really, really, really want women to have healthy babies and they want women to end up healthy at the end of it, even if it wasn't part of their identity, they're legally responsible. And so they're very, very committed to that. And Well, they're the first people to be sued, too, if, if something does go wrong that right. might have been preventable. Exactly. But even before you get sued, and getting sued is a complete and utter nightmare, there is nothing worse for an obstetrician than to lose a baby. Because Obstetrics isn't like surgery where, you know, surgery you operate on all sorts of people, and they're very, very sick, and some people are going to die, and it's awful, but, you know, nobody lives forever. Babies are not supposed to die, and they're certainly not supposed to die because the doctor didn't do enough. So um, it is, from the obstetrician's point of view, we're very focused on outcome, and uh, a lot of other people are focused on process. And they have other reasons to focus on process. One of them is they want to save money. But saving money by doing fewer C-sections is actually pretty short-sighted because um, then you spend a lot of money on babies who are brain damaged or die. And uh, uh, the what we really need is better technology so we know more accurately which babies are in trouble. Right now, we're pretty limited because the only technology we have is to measure a baby's heart rate in labor. And imagine if you felt sick and you went to the doctor and the only thing the doctor could do was check your heart rate. It'd be very hard. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of diagnostic value there. Right, right. I mean, you know that at certain extremes, like if your heart rate is really, really low, that's a very bad thing. So you've got to do something about that. And if your heart rate is really, really high, that's also a bad thing, and you have to do something about that. But a lot of bad stuff can happen in the middle, and um, it's, it's hard for an obstetrician to know exactly what's going on. So when you're in a situation and you look at the fetal monitor and you say, ooh, you know, this baby might not be getting enough oxygen, but I can't really tell for sure, should you wait? and see what happens in an effort to keep down your C-section rate? Or should you recommend a C-section saying, look, I, I, the only way I can guarantee that everything's going to turn out fine is to get the baby out now? And my experience is that most mothers, when it comes to any risk in childbirth, they would rather take that risk on themselves than put the risk on the baby. Yeah, yeah. Well, you cite a couple of interesting statistics about how Neonatal mortality has dropped 90%, and maternal mm -hmm. mortality has dropped nearly 99%. Correct. Now, how much of that is 
thanks to C-section and and other kinds of interventions, and how much of that is is thanks to other kinds of technology that have have happened? Well, most of it is due, almost all of it is due to medicine. Not all of it is obstetrics. I mean, the obstetricians don't cre- take credit for creating blood banking, but we're the only ones who can give you the blood if you need it when you're having a childbirth emergency. And the same thing with antibiotics. Um, you know, one of the biggest advances was uh, epidural anesthesia and spinal anesthesia, so you don't have to have general anesthesia for a C-section. But um, as Atul Gawande pointed out in an article in The New Yorker a few years ago, there is nothing that has saved as many lives as C-sections. And, um, you know, we really shouldn't forget that. And you mentioned the World Health Organization recommendation. The World Health Organization has acknowledged in its own materials that it has no scientific evidence to support those recommendations. (laughs) In fact... That's kind of big. Well, it is kind of big. I mean, that's that's buried in their stuff. I mean, it's just sort of what they feel is the right C-section rate. Um, there was recently, just within the last few months, a study that came out of uh, Harvard Medical School, and I think uh, actually Dr. Gawande was involved in it among a whole bunch of other people. And what it showed is that the minimum C-section rate compatible with low maternal mortality and low neonatal mortality, the minimum C-section rate was 19%. So 10 to 15 is nowhere near there. And uh, if you look at countries that have low maternal and neonatal mortality, you will find that those countries have C-section rates uh, that average around 22%. But go up to places like Italy, which has excellent um, neonatal and maternal mortality rates and has a C-section rate of 42%. Yeah. You know, Amy, I just want you to, we only have a minute left, but I want you to talk quickly about breastfeeding. And you make a really interesting and provocative comment, which is that, where is it? I just lost it here. Breastfeeding has real benefits. In industrialized countries with clean water, those benefits are small. Right. Yes, that's. That's the uh, little secret about breastfeeding that uh, isn't really being shared with women. Um, One thing I say in the book is that breastfeeding doesn't have any more benefits than it ever did, but it's become moralized, and the moralization of breastfeeding has paralleled the monetization of breastfeeding. So now there's a breastfeeding industry that only makes money if you breastfeed. And so they've manufactured this incredible sense of urgency around breastfeeding. And breastfeeding is great. I mean, I breastfed four kids. I liked it. But when you really look at the science and you separate out people by um, socioeconomic class and maternal education, what you find is that in countries with clean water, the benefits of breastfeeding are restricted to a few less colds and a few less episodes of diarrheal illness across the entire population of infants in the first year. So that's not exactly a big deal. And when you couple with that with the fact that at least 5% and perhaps up to 15% of women will not make enough milk to fully nourish a baby, uh, and those babies are therefore at risk for failure to thrive and dehydration and serious consequences like seizure and death, 
then you have to ask, why are we pushing so hard for breastfeeding? And, you know, the the, breastfeeding, the breastfeeding rate has tripled since um, the mid-1970s, and I don't think anybody can point to a single-term baby whose life has been saved by that or a single health care dollar that's been saved by that. Wow. And that, which is not to say that you shouldn't breastfeed. Uh, go right ahead. It's a good thing. But if you can't, it, you should not feel bad about it. Amy Tutur, the author of Push Back, Guilt in the Age of Natural Parenting. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called hands-only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. For more information on this latest method of CPR, visit handsonlycpr.org today. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Now, we talk a lot about puberty and girls because it's so much more mysterious than puberty and boys, but a lot of people don't really quite get what's going on with boys either. Dear Mr. Dad, I'm a widowed mother of two boys, one of whom just started puberty. I've been agonizing over a birds and bees talk, but I'm not sure I'm the right person to deliver it. Having lived through puberty myself, I'm pretty familiar with what girls go through, but I don't know nearly enough about boys' experience. One thing I do know is that I barely recognize my son anymore. So two questions. What do I need to know about boys' puberty? And is there anything I can do? Nature does some pretty amazing things, like turning caterpillars into butterflies and pollywogs into frogs. What those and other dramatic examples of metamorphosis have in common is that youngsters are being transformed into adults. And when animals become adults, the first thing they do is start making babies. Same goes for humans, although we generally hold off on the whole baby-making thing for a few years, fortunately. Right now, hormones are tearing through your son's body and brain, getting him ready to reproduce. That sounds like pretty scary stuff to me. For boys, puberty typically begins at age 11 or 12, although sometimes as early as 9 or as late as 14. Over the course of 2 to 5 years, your son's penis and scrotum will get bigger, He'll start sprouting pubic and underarm hair, and his voice will get deeper, and he may develop acne. Most people know how puberty changes girls and make the incorrect assumption that it's no big deal for boys. Not so. For example, in the not-too-distant future, he'll have his first wet dream, which he'll probably either find confusing or frightening. He may worry that he had an accident in bed or that there's something terribly wrong with him. He may also discover masturbation. One good thing that could come of this is that he'll end up doing his own laundry for a while. Enjoy that. And let's not forget about those spontaneous erections that pop up at the most inopportune times like the middle of English class or lunch, usually when there are lots of other people around. Because males tend to be competitive, your son may be constantly comparing himself to his friends. And if some of them are developing more quickly than he is, he may feel inadequate. Locker rooms, I've got to tell you, are a terrible place for boys who are lagging behind. While your son's puberty is going to be tough on him, it can also bring up all sorts of conflicting emotions and may not be all that easy for you either. 
After all, your little boy is becoming a man. Right now, what he needs from you is information, patience, and reassurance that what he's going through is normal. By the time girls reach puberty, they've been exposed to all sorts of magazine articles and books that have prepared them at least a little bit for puberty. But there is precious little out there for boys. One good resource, though, is What's Happening to My Body book for Boys by Linda Medeiros. So make a point to ask your son whether he has any questions about how his body is changing and set aside some time to answer them. Be prepared for a little rejection, though. Chances are pretty slim that your son will want to discuss puberty with you, especially anything having to do with sex or physical changes or girls. For that reason, ask an adult male friend or relative to help out. If either you or your son is too embarrassed to have the conversation, he'll go looking for answers elsewhere. And the last place you want a young boy to be is online Googling words like sex. If you've got questions or comments for us here at Positive Parenting, you can send them through our website, MrDad.com. You can also take a look at our archives of many, many, many Ask Mr. Dad columns at AskMrDad.com or MrDad.com, and you can navigate to the Ask Mr. Dad section. But wait, don't go quite yet because we'll be right back with more Positive Parenting. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Careful at the party, hon. Remember what we talked about? I know, Mom. No alcohol, right? Yeah, I know. Honey, seriously, I know you're in high school now, but you're still too young to drink, and you're still my daughter. I don't want anything happening to you. I know. I know. Really? Drinking is different with kids. You're still growing. You're still developing. It messes with your judgment. I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all, before they're teens. And you could do things that, honey, trust me, if you drink, you could do things you don't really want to do that I don't want you to do. Yeah, Mom, I know. Listen, I'm just trying to protect you, all right? If you're a grown woman, it's different, but you're not. I know, okay? I know. Start talking before they start drinking, and keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello and welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. As every autism parent knows, a diagnosis is just the beginning. The next step is to make sense of the bewildering array of challenges, things like constipation, sleep deprivation, irritability that are shared by so many kids on the spectrum, and, of course, conflicting opinions about what to do. The standard practice is to medicate those symptoms, and that often leaves the kids to power through a fog of untreated health conditions. In 2007, the American Academy of Pediatrics encouraged pediatricians to assess and treat underlying medical conditions before prescribing medication for the difficult behaviors of autism spectrum disorder, and they went as far as to say medications have not been proven to correct the core deficits of autism spectrum disorders and are not the primary treatment. 
They also went on to say, in some cases, medical factors may cause or exacerbate maladaptive behaviors, and recognition and treatment of medical conditions may eliminate the need for psychopharmacological agents. Now, a lot of people would have thought that that would change the way that children on the spectrum are assessed and over-medicated. Unfortunately, it did not. In this part of today's show, we're going to talk about some natural approaches to dealing with kids on the autism spectrum. We'll jump into all of that when Positive Parenting continues right after this. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European pro golf tours... One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice. One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Janet Lintella, who's the co-author of The Unprescription for Autism, A Natural Approach to a Calmer, Happier, and More Focused Child. Janet, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us your story about how you happened to get into this. It's very intriguing in the, in the beginning of the book. It's actually one of, the, one of the prefaces of the book written by somebody else, but it talks about your story, and I'd rather hear that from you. I suppose I got into it the the night my first uh, son was born, and I brought home a baby that, unbeknownst to me, would not sleep well for years. And I just thought I had one of those babies that didn't sleep. He would sleep about 20 to 30 minutes out of every 90, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it was very exhausting, and he had a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms, but he was a happy baby at the time. And then as time went on, and he I think he was about three years old when I began to realize he was irritable all the time, and then that progressed to being very angry, and then he became a very aggressive child. And by the time he was five and six years old, it was shocking. He could throw a tantrum and flip a couch over or kick a hole in the wall, and, you know, it was our first child. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know if it was our parenting or, or what was going on. And he was so verbal. We used to joke he came out talking. He just talked all the time, and he would never stop talking. And to be honest, autism is not what popped into our mind. My husband's a medical doctor. I'm a chiropractic physician. And nothing we had ever heard about autism, or I guess our our stereotype of autism, fitted what we were seeing in our child. And so it actually took a lot of years to figure out what was going on with him. And, um, you know, a friend put us in touch with some doctors that were doing some cutting-edge research and treatment. We began to learn, oh, this is a package deal. There's a lot more here going on than Mm. just 
someone not looking you in the eye, and our son didn't even rock or flap or lose his language, like I say. So it was very confusing for us for a long time. Right. And what are you? You started right at birth, you said, and I think most of the people that I've heard describe autism, the symptoms don't show up until eighteen months or two years or something. And I mean, how do you, do you think that they can look back and say, "Oh yeah, there was something here before then," or is well, your I don't, or you, how, how are you doing it? The autism symptoms that we're talking about, for example, I'm not talking about a newborn that was rocking or flapping or or not speaking. Our son didn't do those things. Um, he, in fact, didn't meet any of the screening criteria except I do remember he didn't wave bye-bye or wave hello to people uh, when he was you know, less than a year old, and that was the only thing we noticed. But there are you know, a large subset of people on the spectrum that we now know through the last two to three decades of research have gastrointestinal or immune symptoms. And that's what I'm talking about that I notice. I mean, bringing home a baby the first day, I can't say he was autistic the first day, but he was different health-wise from the first day. And many people that come to my center, you know, we start out with doing our intake questionnaire. We start out with the pregnancy and the birth. And a lot of them start out with very fussy, colicky babies who couldn't sleep, who were hyperactive, who caught every cold coming and going, or the opposite, never got sick. You know, so it's it's health issues is mainly what my book deals with. Nothing in my book actually treats autism itself or cures it or anything like that. It's the associated health issues of the spectrum. Okay. Let's talk about tax sitting. I think that's it's such a, a funny thing that just at the beginning it just so those who don't happen to have the book in front of them. Rule number one, if you're sitting on a tack, it takes a lot of aspirin to make it feel good. The appropriate treatment for tack sitting is tack removal. That's just that's very, a very funny way of looking at it, I mean, and, and very true way of looking at it. So what, how are you applying that to autism? Well, what's happening is um, when you have a child on the spectrum, like I say, a lot of them have these physical issues. We have children that can't sleep well. The constipation is, is very common on the spectrum. Up to 80-some percent might have the constipation. So they can't sleep. They can't poop. They don't feel well. They have acid reflux with this GI dysfunction, and it makes them very irritable. And for especially the ones who can't express it, and even a small verbal child can't really express that level of chronic discomfort or pain, it comes out as irritability, aggression, or even violence. And that's really not part of autism. So what happens when we take our child to the doctor and we say, he can't sleep, we're given a sleeping prescription for a pill. Can't poop, our child's put on long-term laxatives. Can't behave, irritable, aggressive. We're putting children as young as two years old on antipsychotics that haven't even been tested in children that young. And so they're trying to treat the irritability and trying to treat the sleeplessness, but they're not asking the right question. These pills don't pull the tack out of his hind end. <laughs> they, they help him sleep or poop or behave, but no one's saying, why can't they sleep? Why are they irritable? Why are they, you know, acting like this? And it's turning out that this is pretty much pain behavior from gastrointestinal dysfunction. There can be other reasons, but the common reason is gastrointestinal dysfunction, lots and lots of acid reflux. Mm-hmm. that people aren't even suspecting in their child. That's why they can't sleep, right. and that's why they're grumpy. Now, you've got some theories that are that it could be enzymes and that probiotics can help and there's antimicrobial things. What's going on there that's causing these things? 
Some of it's just a a genetic tendency. This gastrointestinal dysfunction, they haven't entirely nailed it down yet. Of course, the research is ongoing. But the research is showing more than half the kids on the spectrum aren't making enough digestive enzymes. And so that's like, you know, oil for an engine. Your your GI tract isn't going to work well or get their nutrition without digestive enzymes. It's also showing, and it seems to be genetic at the moment, that there's a tendency not to have the right mix of beneficial bacteria or not have enough beneficial bacteria. And that, again, is essential for digestion and also the immune system. The bulk of our immune system is in the gut. And so these two simple things, um, you know, the digestive enzymes and the probiotics, are like changing, you know, the oil in, in an engine. And the medications are like washing the car. <laughs> so one kind of makes things look better and seem better, but the other one is what they really, truly need. And I go to the research every time to see what they need. Now, when you talk about it being genetic, did you or your husband have GI issues as well, either as kids or as adults? Not that we can actually nail down, but you know, throughout our family trees, we see things like that. And, we, you know, the genetic package, it's not just GI stuff. There's more anxiety and depression, OCD, panic attacks, tick disorders. We do see that throughout both our family trees. And um, they're more prone to mood disorders like um, bipolar and schizophrenia and things like that. So um, not necessarily in ourselves. And I think that sort of took it by surprise. We didn't really have those issues ourselves, but it is throughout our tree, I guess. Now, you said that about 80% of autistic kids or kids on the spectrum have some sort of GI issues. That just seems like something we would have heard about a lot before. Well, we do hear about it a lot. Now, 15 years ago, when we would talk about um, tummy troubles or constipation, people would get a blank look on their face and go, what does, you know, constipation or acid reflux have to do with autism? It was a complete disconnect, really baffling for them. And nowadays, everyone just nods their head and goes, oh, yeah, of course, yeah. And maybe it's because I'm in the autism world and these are autism parents I'm talking to and they've been searching the internet or talking to specialists. But it is very common, and people in the autism world are well aware of it now. Okay. And and is it something that people have got a sense of where it comes from? Again, you said it's genetic, but it just seems so, for somebody who's not dealing with this on a daily level, it just seems odd. Well, and part of it's our lifestyle. I mean, we have antibiotics now. Those are great drugs, you know, I, I take them if I need them. They kill the bad germs, but they also kill our good bacteria. We right. have a lot more C-sections these days, and the research is showing the babies that are born via C-section, and I'm a three-C-section mom, they don't have nearly the beneficial bacteria or the best mix of them that a child that comes through the birth canal would have. And this results in a lot of, I mean, there's a ton of babies nowadays on acid reflux medications. Way more. I mean, you just never heard about it when I was growing up, but it's very common now for babies and children to be on acid reflux medication. Talking with Janet Lintilla, who's the author of The Unprescription for Autism, A Natural Approach for a Calmer, Happier, and More Focused Child. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking about The Unprescription for Autism. I'm Armin Brock, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? How's that cook? How do you change the ringtone? How much does this cost? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? 
We ask questions everywhere in life, except... Any questions? Um, no. At the doctor's office, ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? Questions lead to better health care. Go to ahrq.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Janet Lintilla, who's the co-author with Martha Murphy of The Unprescription for Autism, A Natural Approach for a Calmer, Happier, and More Focused Child. So thus far, Janet, we've been talking about the, the why and your process of learning and figuring out what all these things are about and identifying symptoms that, that you really didn't, hadn't heard of before. Um, so now I think we've got to talk about, as the book is divided up, what we're going to do about this stuff. So, you know, we've we've had guests on the show talking about uh, what's going on in the in the microbiota in in the gut and probiotics and things. But what how so? How do you make a diagnosis first of all of what's wrong with the gut, and then what do we do about that once you have that diagnosis? Well, I I go through a very uh, long screening process. Uh, my intake questionnaire is probably eighteen or twenty pages long. And, again, based on the science and the research that's been emerging, I ask lots of questions. And people always seem a little surprised to see a a color stool chart in my questionnaire where I'm asking about, you know, what types of uh, poop their child might have or the gassiness of their child or how often they have a bowel movement. I ask about their sleep patterns and just all kinds of stuff. And so um, I don't exactly assign a diagnosis. Like I'm not going to diagnose a child with acid reflux, but I'll say, you know, I suspect acid reflux is probably what's keeping your child up. Let's do some good GI support. So I'm not exactly treating acid reflux. I'm providing support, gastrointestinal support, immune support, anything that's going to balance that child's health. I do run lab tests if I need to. Uh, We run a lot of stool and urine tests here to see what they're lacking or what might help support more vibrant health for them. One of the frustrating things, I have to say, about the the whole probiotic movement, if you want to call it that, is that if you go to Costco or you go to a health food store, it says probiotics. And or maybe there's ten different kinds of bacteria that are in there, or there's you know, twenty five billion or six billion or however many. You know, it's it's so impossible for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing exactly, and it seems like it's also hard for people who do know what they're doing to figure out exactly which ones you're low in, and how much you need to get things up to the optimal level. You know, we have. So many millions of microbes in our body and, and hundreds of different strains. And some people have this attitude of let's wait and study each strain individually and see what happens when we give a single strain. But I like to think of our development throughout history as human beings. And, you know, we used to eat a diet rich in living microbes. We ate fermented foods, um, kefir, kombucha, sauerkraut, kimchi. Every culture seems to have some kind of fermented food that they incorporate, and we get a lot of great results by giving blends. I don't focus on just one blend. I tell my my patients to mix it up and buy different blends, but the key for me is 
you have to get something that's going to make it alive through the stomach acid. Uh, my experts think about 70% of probiotics that we purchase die in the stomach acid. So it's like, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, if it doesn't arrive alive, one? it doesn't matter how fabulous the strains are or how right. many different strains you have. So I always tell people you've got to look for a delivery system that guarantees a you know, live arrival in the small intestine. That's the key for me. And as far as getting picky about strains yet, I don't think we're there to just do one or two specific tr- strains for yeah. stuff. Well, I'm just wondering, I mean, speaking of delivery systems, I mean, wouldn't it make sense to go the other direction? Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, um, if it's, you know, that avoids the whole stomach acid issue and it can go straight to where it needs to go. Right. Gosh, I haven't thought about that. You, you're you're taking a completely different angle here. Might have more of an ick factor, though, <laughs> I guess. Well, you know, not not as much of an ick factor as, as uh, fecal transplants, which oh, I... Oh, wow. Have, that has... That, the first time I heard about those, I just could not believe my ears. I've gotten a little more used to it over the years, and it's actually holding out a lot of promise. I, I don't know, know anyone that, who's had those. Right. For, I mean, for, for those of you who didn't... You can, well, if you listen to the words fecal transplant, you kind of you can imagine what that is. And there is a major ick factor, but apparently, you know, people who have been had their intestinal flora wiped out can get somebody else's that from a healthy person, or or you can have somebody you can take a healthy person's fecal matter and bring it into somebody who's unhealthy, and it can help to replace what's uh, you know what's been damaged and. It, it's remarkable, but it really, yeah, definitely an ick factor. And, but that alone tells us there's got to be something to it, how how beneficial having the correct microbiome balance is to our health. I hear that it can reset immune systems that aren't doing well. I believe it's holding some promise for MS and things like that, really strong immune problems there. Yeah, which is, is pretty amazing. So, I mean, if it can, if it can work. But So have you have you seen anything... And the research that you've been looking at that shows that there might be some application for autism? Well, I hear about it all the time at autism conferences, and I believe it's being done privately. I I believe the studies are ongoing. It takes a while to accumulate that kind of data in large enough numbers to be significant. So I'm expecting at any time someone's going to pop up and go, hey, you know, or several people are going to pop up and go, look at the results of these fecal transplant trials that we've been running and I'm looking forward to it, not to having one, but to, to reading <laughs> the information. Well, yeah. It's uh, it well, it's it's medical science, and it's pretty cool. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, things that you know, if you think back 20 years ago, stuff that people would have said, "Ugh, that's disgusting," which we do now, without really thinking about it. Um, you you talk in the book something that rarely comes up in books about autism, which is having to do with the adults who are on the spectrum and. Because these problems don't go away, do they? They just continue on. They do not. In fact, they sort of drop off their radar. People age out of the system of government services that are available, and families are just struggling along trying to take care of them themselves, aging parents. And like I say in the book, the elephant in the room is, what's going to happen when I'm gone? That's running through all of our minds. And even my son now, who is so much, you know, he, he... it's much higher functioning. We didn't cure autism or anything, but these health issues greatly affect independence and function. So he's in college, he's driving, he's an Eagle Scout. We couldn't be happier, but there's still challenges for him. And it just makes me want to live forever and always be there for him. So that 
Yeah, it's uh, whenever I post a piece on Facebook about adults with autism, people chime in and go, thank you for not forgetting these kids that have grown up and become adults. They spend more of their life as an adult with autism than a child. Yeah. You know, I was just talking to my daughter about this the, the other day about, I remember thinking back to when I was a kid and, and wondering now, where were all the kids with autism? And the solution that was kind of the, the accepted one was to institutionalize them, just take them out of the system altogether. So there are probably still a lot of people who have just been warehoused someplace and they never have gotten the the help that they need that then some, you know, some of their issues could have been dealt with. Yes. I, I think a lot of them were institutionalized and nowadays they, they don't do that anymore where there's this push to have them live independently, which I love. And by the way, well, that's in great, the community yeah. and have them adapt to the community. But I also think the community is going to have to adapt to them. A lot of our behavior therapies are aimed at getting them to behave just like a neurotypical or a typically developing person and I think we ought to meet them halfway and say, why can't we let some of that autisticness shine through? Of course, support skill deficits or health challenges, but let's accept their differences and celebrate, gosh, that autistic brain can be so awesome and, and just approach things so differently. I think we're missing a really great resource here. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's it's coming out in popular media a little bit. Every once in a while there's an autistic character who, and sometimes they're not using it, properly, but you know, their their boss is having them memorize long strings of numbers so that they don't have to write down the passwords to things or or whatever. But it it's, it becomes a little stereotypical. But yeah, yeah, there there's definitely a place for people with different capabilities. Yeah. You know, my my son that has um, Asperger's syndrome, he is interested in acting and he'll go, Mom, do you think I could be an actor? And I said, Honey, almost every show these days has an autistic character and you don't even have to study for it. You know, you've got it nailed. So <laughs> Um, I love telling him that. Well, I've been talking with Janet Lintela, who's the author of The Unprescription for Autism, A Natural Approach for a Calmer, Happier, and More Focused Child. You mentioned uh, posting things on Facebook. What's that page? Autism Health. Autism Health. So Facebook.com slash Autism Health. Well, on Facebook, if you just search for Autism Health, our clinic page okay. should pop up. Our website is loveautismhealth.com. Okay. Janet, thank you very much. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.